Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to look this morning. So if you have a Bible, as always, you can open there right at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 2 is our focus. God's grand design, the beauty of biblical complementarity. That's the sermon series I introduced and began last Sunday. By grand design, we mean God's design of men and women according to his creative, all-wise purpose in all of human and redemptive history. It is a grand design in its details, in the differences of men and women, and it's grand in its scope as it affects all of history and even into eternity. Male and female, he created them. We saw last week. Men and women are different. It's a newsflash. Men and women are different. That used to be pretty well assumed, but we need to say it more clearly today. Listen to this quote here from, I was reading um, this article and it was highlighting, this was from a pastor, Andrew Wilson, a pastor and author, um, who was just speaking of the differences of men and women. It's, he says, it should not be surprising that men and women are strikingly different in all sorts of ways that transcend cultural variations. The bell curves for men and women are created, are centered in different places. And not just for obvious physical traits, height, strength, hair, so on, but also for hormonal, psychological, and interpersonal traits. And then he gives lots of just statistics. These are things that are documented. Men are typically more aggressive, competitive, fearless, likely to take risk, promiscuous, and prone to violence. And testosterone is aligned with higher levels of confidence, sex drive, and status assertion. Women, on average, are more prone to neuroticism and agreeableness. Consequently, men are generally clustered at the upper and lower extremities of society. Men are, just, men are not just more likely to be very rich and powerful, but also far, far more likely to be criminals, killers, homeless, excluded, or imprisoned. Male groups are much more characterized by sparring, fighting, power structures, and banter, while female groups are typically smaller, more indirect in confrontation, egalitarian in structure, verbally dexterous, and oriented around people rather than things. Gender trends can be noticed before children are particularly aware of the sex they are. To take a tragic example, 40 of 43 serious shootings by toddlers in 2015 were by boys. Even our closest animal relative, <laughs> the male preference for trucks over dolls extends to monkeys. <laughs> Julia Turner, an editor of Slate, commented recently that the boyishness of her twin sons had provided a significant challenge to her commitment to gender as a social construct offering the fascinating remark that despite her egalitarian bona fides, she says, there's a there there. <laughs> to which someone responded, indeed there is. And it takes a liberal arts degree not to see it. <laughs> That's low, I know. He goes on, Wilson, and I, I just agree with this. He says, complementarity appears to be hardwired into human beings. Even from the perspective of mainstream secular scientific and sociological research, the vast majority of human societies have known this intuitively. But in a culture like ours, where most of us have never fought for our homeland, died in childbirth, gone down the mines, or settled a frontier, it has become forgotten. Facts, however, are stubborn things. Yes, we know men and women are different, but
But that difference we are trying to show is not a design flaw, but a design feature. A beautiful feature. A complementary difference, we are calling it. Complementary difference. By complementarity, as we defined it last week, it's combining in such a way as to enhance or emphasize the qualities of each other. A divine fittedness in our differences. That is a beautiful part of God's design. That's what we are wanting to see. So in these first few weeks of our study, we are seeking to lay some biblical foundations from the first few chapters of Genesis. These chapters are essential. They're critical for understanding really everything the Bible develops about biblical complementarity of men and women. So these early chapters are crucial for our understanding of God's design as seen in the rest of the Bible. So last Sunday, if you're with us, we looked at Genesis chapter 1, the creation account. And that creation account, the apex of the creation, the pinnacle of the creation, is the creation of man. And we saw two really important, essential things about the creation of man. First, man is created in the image of God. Distinct from all other creatures. That is the most essential identity about human beings. We are made in the image and likeness of God to reflect God. It's really, really stunning. And as we said, that's where, and as Frank prayed, our inherent dignity and value of every human being. That's where the sanctity of all human life comes from. We have a real objective basis for it. And it's right here in creation. All of us made in the image of God. That's the first really important thing we saw. But the second is closely related. Man is created male and female. It's what the text said. First time in the creation account that that is spelled out specifically. Male and female, he created them. There's only two sexual kinds. Both equally in the image of God. Equal in value. Equal in personhood. Two sexual kinds, male and female. And we stress that. And we saw right at the end kind of the first hint of this complementary design in the male and female. And that God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's something neither man nor woman can do alone. Part of this reflecting of God and imaging God and filling the earth with image bearers, this multiplying is male and female. We are designed physically in a complementary way to fulfill this. So that's part one. Part two this morning is chapter two. So part two, Genesis chapter two the found, again, these are foundations of biblical complementarity. We're not going to see all the specifics. We're just laying these foundations in these early chapters. And chapter 2, I would probably assert, is probably the most foundational chapter for seeing the difference, the complementary difference between men and women. It's this chapter, because that's really what this chapter is about. It is quite remarkable. Let me read it. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 4. I'm going to read the chapter. This will be on the screen behind me if you want to look there. Or you can follow in your Bible or just listen as I read this account. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the land or the earth. And no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But a stream probably used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface or whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man, it's that word Adam, formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east, Eden, 
And there he planted, placed, excuse me, the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The Bedellum and the Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for man, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh of that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And a man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is part two of our foundations for biblical complementarity. Why another creation account? Why a, a second, another creation account. That is, chapter 2 doesn't flow chronologically out of chapter 1, the first part of chapter 2. Chapter 2 doesn't flow chronologically out of that creation week. It doesn't just pick up and say, now here's what man did. But no, it recounts some of creation. Do you see that in verse 4? This, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven back to creation it's not really another creation account it's not a contradictory creation account but it's a zoomed in focus we have a zoomed in lens here to focus on the specific creation of man as male and female chapter one we got the broad overview of creation you could picture it as a pyramid, God creating, and the apex of that is man, male and female, in his image. That was chapter one, kind of the broad overview with man as the apex. Chapter two now goes back to that creation of man and now slows us way down to see the specifics. And man now is the center of the circle. The focus is on the man, on his creation his connection in relation to his environment. Other things are created in relation to the man. So that's the difference in chapter 2. We're going back to see. God wants us to see. Man is at the center here. Now, just th listen. Just the fact that there is a supplemental account of man's creation should be very significant. Now, he could have just went on in the narrative and just spoke of the first man and woman in the garden and just went on, but... But he doesn't. He goes back to give us the details, the specific account of their creation. That's what chapter 2 is about. Now, chapter 2 teaches more than the complementarity of men and women. As there are other features in this text that are really important to the storyline of the Bible that we just 
We're going to have to leave. That's not the focus of our study. I wish we could. We don't have time for those. We've taught through Genesis, so you can go back and listen to that a long time ago. But we're going to focus on the complementarity of men and women because no doubt that's the primary focus of this chapter. That's what this chapter is about, the specific creation of the man and the woman. I'm going to give you what I called clues of complementarity, eight of them. So hang on. Eight clues of complementarity. What we have in this chapter are not really specific details of all the biological makeup of men and women and all of their function, but we do have intentional patterns, what I'm just calling clues here. They're not fully developed, but they're laying foundations. doesn't give us all the implications of complementarity, But yet we sense that there is real significance, meaning in the way that God does things here. So these clues pointing us to the complementarity of men and women. So I'm going to give you eight clues, and then I'm going to finish with just a real general implication. Okay, that's where we're going. First clue. The man was created before the woman. It's your first clue. When we read in verse 7, the account starts, And the Lord God formed Adam of dust. Now, we, we might think there that he's just referring to mankind generally. But it becomes very clear that he's referring to the male member of humanity. But he's still called just Adam. In fact, that's the challenge all through uh, Genesis 2 and 3 and even 1. Remember that name, we say Adam, Adam, is just used for man universally, but it's also used for the first male member who we'll just call Adam. But all the way through, you could just translate the man. He is really the man, Adam is. The first man, he's the man, he is Adam. So you can, that word is the same word. It's just context determines whether we're referring to the specific person or just human race. Well, here it's the specific person, the first male member. And yet, that remember we said... It's just interesting. Why doesn't he have a different name? The woman is going to have the name Eve. But the man is just Adam. He's representing mankind. So he's created before the woman. Before the woman. That's interesting. When we were talking about this last night at our dinner table, my son said, well, why didn't he just create them at the same time? That would have been a lot easier right i said exactly why didn't he why is there a reason there's a reason turns out it's not arbitrary there's a reason so there's your first clue (laughs) the man was created before the woman again we're just going to give clues here without developing them too much second the man the man was placed now the male member of this humanity was placed in the garden to work it so right away we read there that The Lord planted a garden. Now, again, when you hear the word garden, don't think your vegetable garden. Actually, vegetable gardens are evil in the Bible. If you remember the book of Kings, that's a whole other story. Think Royal Park. Royal Park. Think when we were in New York City, we went to Central Park. Remember that? Central, just in the heart of Manhattan, this huge, just lush part in the middle of the city. That's a park, right? It's a Royal Park. That's what you have here in Eden. That's what he, this is a royal garden, we would say, with trees and plants and vegetation and just beauty, obviously. But the man, this is before Eve was created, was taken and he was placed in the garden. He was created outside the garden. He was placed in the garden and then he was given the command to work it. So remember, we read earlier in chapter 2, it says that that these certain plants didn't exist because there was no man to work the ground. Well, now there's a garden and there's a man to work the ground. So somehow the fruitfulness of this garden is dependent on the man. God's providing, but the man is working. Somewhat, somehow, depend. we don't know all the features of the garden, but it somehow depended on his working. 
That's part of his ruling over creation. Starts right here, even in the garden. Now, just note that, that this assignment to man is before the fall. (laughs) So, sorry to tell you, work was before the fall, not the result of the fall, right? Now, that work's going to get a lot harder after the fall. Let's see that in chapter 3. But here, this is part of God's good design for the man working, ruling over, subduing, starting in the garden. I always have the sense, can't prove it, that this garden, I, I do think, is a, a real place. I mean, he gives all the, the landmarks of it with these river. I mean, it's located in a real place here, and it's real, and yet there's a, there's a supernatural quality to it with these rivers providing life and all of that, and yet a, a real place. And my sense here is that you, you start in the garden, and really the, the point the purpose, man, as you work this, and as we'll see later, fruitful, multiply, is you're, you're going to extend the borders of this Eden to fill the whole earth. Eden is not the whole earth. It's this location. So anyway, man was placed in the garden to work it. I can't get off on these other tangents, sorry. Third, the man was given the priest-like task of guarding the holiness of the garden temple. The man was given the priest-like task of guarding the holiness of the garden temple. Now, here's one of these features that I wish we could develop this morning because it's really important to the whole storyline of the Bible. But you're just going to have to take my word for it here and go back and think of it yourself. I'm not going to prove to you, try to prove to you here this morning that this garden is more than just a nice place to live. It is really the prototype temple sanctuary there's lots of clues in here and those clues become obvious when you get to the tabernacle design and then the temple design that we saw in the book of kings it points back here then ultimately to the new heavens and new earth in the garden sanctuary that is this is the place of god's unique presence the meeting place with god so this garden is significant as a garden sanctuary And Adam, not only is he to rule and work, but he's to guard it. So look there at your Bible. Verse 15, when the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to work and guard it. Those actually those two words to serve and to guard. That pairing of words are the pairing of words that are used of priest in the tabernacle can read that numbers three numbers eight they are to serve and guard to keep their services within the tabernacle and yet there's a function of guarding the tabernacle from defilement part of the priest role well that's adam's role that's his role he works as he does he's serving he's worshiping god and he's guarding Remember in chapter 1, we read the command that they were to subdue the earth. There's the potential of hostility. There's the potential of something threatening the sanctuary, the holiness of this place. Because then he follows on. Did you see it there in verses 16 and 17? He follows on right after saying, guard it and From any tree of the garden you may eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. He's given this command to Adam. For in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. The Lord is is testing this obedience and trust. We might ask, well, why does he do that? He doesn't tell us. It's part of his good design to have this test here, but that's Adam's assignment. Guard the holiness of the temple garden. Subdue. Don't eat from this tree. So that was given to the man. Number four. The man was responsible for naming the animals. It's a curious part of the text, isn't it? For naming the animals. The Lord says in verse 19, he just formed out of the ground every beast of the field, bird of the sky, and he just brought to see what man would name them. Like, I wonder who he's going to name this one, right? Man's created. Well, that naming, now that's not just a fun creative exercise. That's part of dominion. It's part of ruling. 
It's part of exercising authority. That's in the Bible. Naming something here is that exercise of authority. So Adam is doing that. The man is doing that, exercising his authority there. Again, all of those things that I just mentioned are before the creation of the woman. These are given specifically to the man to do. He names all the animals before the woman is created. He's exercising this dominion in this way. And yet, the creation of those animals and the naming of those animals was in a bit larger context where he says, "Mm, there's not a suitable helper here for, for Adam. And he's certainly showing him his needs. So that leads to number five. The woman was created for the man. The woman was created for the man. Look at verse 18. We'll come back to this at the end because it's really important. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And as many have pointed out, that's always an arresting statement when everything up to this point has been good and good and very good six times. It is not. This is the first not good in paradise. And what's not good for the man to be alone? That's not good. Not good for him to be alone. That's God's declaration. Yeah, that's not the man saying, I don't like being alone. God says it's not good for the man to be alone. Now, there's probably many layers of his not good being alone. Psychologically, companion-wise. But the primary, the primary not good of being alone is that task of be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? Through childbearing. That's part of the not good here, probably the main part of the not good here, because that's his function or his mandate. So it's not good for the man to be alone. So that's what God creates these animals to have him name him. So it's not only an exercise in his dominion, but God is certainly highlighting that all of these are different from me. They're not like me. Now, maybe I really like the dog or it's a good companion or I really identify with the giraffe or something, but they're different. They're not like me. And so he ends that section again by repeating that same line, verse 20. But for the man, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the woman was created for the man because it wasn't good for the man to be alone. So just just we'll come back to this because he is saying something essential about the purpose, his purpose for creating the woman. Something really important here. He's he's stating a purpose for creating the woman. It's not good. I will create a helper suitable for him. We'll come back to those words. And then he's going to create the woman. The special, unique creation. So that's number six. The woman was created from the man. The woman was created for the man. And the woman was created from the man. And so we get this statement in verse 22 after all these animals, in verse 21, that the Lord God put the man to sleep. And usually when God puts someone to sleep in the Bible, he's going to do something only he can do. And this only God can do. And he takes the side of the flesh, the rib, and the side of the man and fashions it. Builds it is the word. Builds it. He formed the man from dust. He builds the woman from this part of the man and he brings her to the man now whether how much we believe that is literal no reason to believe it's not certainly do that but it is certainly symbol laden isn't it again there's intentionality there's purpose for why God is doing it this way it's symbol laden that is She is from the man. She is his equal. She is like him. Yet not exactly like him. Right? That's what he's getting at. 
This is symbolic or a symbol laden way to show this. She is his equal and yet different. And yet she corresponds to him. Matthew Henry has these now really mortal kind of comment on Matthew Henry is a Puritan commentator on this text of the God created the woman from the man. He says, not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near to his heart to be beloved. <laughs> I like that description. It is meaningful that she's created from the man. Leads to number seven, seventh clue. The man identifies or names the, quote, woman. The man does. God doesn't. The man does. The Lord, I love that last phrase in verse 22, and and the Lord brought her to the man. This is his gift. Remember, he made those animals, brought them before the man. Now he brings this creation. To the man. It's God's gift. To the man. And his response. These are the first human words. Recorded in the Bible. Is one of. Celebration. Celebration. It's a poem. It's poetic. It's not one of just kind of. Analysis. Of her biology. (laughs) It's not stoic. It's a. Celebration where he shouts out, I take it, this at last, this Hebrew phrasing is emphatic here, this this at last is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That is, this one is made of the same stuff as me. She's like me. She's equal to me. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Unlike any of those animals you paraded before me, this one is the very stuff. She is his equal. And he names her, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. That that triumphantly culminates his work of naming, right? This is the, the culmination. He names her woman. He recognizes God's precious gift, he recognizes her equalness to him and yet correspondingness. He doesn't name her man, but woman. And he's using these different words. The word for man, ish, that he's using here. It's different than Adam, the specific male, ish, and woman, isha. And they're just similar in sound, not necessarily meaning We have the same, by God's providence, thankfully, we have the same correspondence in our English language. Man and woman, don't we? What's what's he saying? She's like me. She's not the exact same as me. She's like me. She corresponds to me. She's my equal as human, obviously, but but she's different. She's woman, man and woman. And And he's portraying in that language this interdependence between the man and the woman. That's his reaction. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that scene? After seeing orangutans and giraffes and who knows what else and big birds and that. Here's, here's my creation for you, woman. He just is blown away. We, we just, church should just stop and celebrate the unique and essential magnificence of the woman in God's creation. This is not second class. This is unique. This is magnificent. This is unequaled in all of creation. That's what Adam recognizes. She's not inferior. She's outstanding. Oh, we in the church of all places... We in the church of all should be those who celebrate the uniqueness and magnificence of women. Not inferior, not second class, but by God's beautiful design. 
Do you see it? Oh, I hope this is our reaction. It's just, wow, look what God has done. Then the last clue. The two become one flesh in marriage. The two become one flesh in marriage. So verse 24 now is an interpretive comment by Moses, the author. It breaks the flow, the storyline of the Bible, to insert an implication, a comment about the unique creation of woman for the man and from the man. And he says, for this reason, for this cause, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And this is what we call marriage. The rest of the Bible is going to call marriage. Isn't that interesting? Moses, as he writes, he sees in the creation, the unique creation of the woman for the man, the institution of marriage. And so he inserts something that is true of all marriages. He's not talking here just about Adam and Eve. You know that, again, because he's inserting a comment, but he says just universally, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Well, we know Adam doesn't have a father and a mother. Shall cleave to his wife. So he's using this marital language. He's just saying, based on this design of God, this is the institution of marriage right here. By God in the first man and the first woman. And right at the heart of this marriage, right at the essence of it, he says the two shall become one flesh. Those two came from one flesh, Adam. They came from one flesh, and then they become one flesh in reunion in marriage. Again, that's why we believe and teach that only marriage is only between a man and a woman because it's not just the union of two persons, two companions, but it's the union of a complementary pair. One flesh. That's the heart of marriage. That is a man and a woman. They were taken from one flesh. They become in this mysterious and unique and profound way one flesh. That's the essence of marriage in the Bible. God defined it. Now one flesh certainly refers to sexual union. But is so much deeper and profound than that. Of this profound intimacy of husband and wife. He is to Cleave to his wife. It's like adhesion with glue. (laughs) This relationship even supersedes that of the parent-child. Which we all know is very close. I want you to leave father and mother. And cleave to your wife and become one flesh. Form a new family. A new household. The man is to do. Now, again, here's one of these, we say a lot about marriage. And we will in this series. Here's just the foundation. Again, just see here as it relates to complementarity that this marriage, this one flesh reunion flows from the complementary design of the man and the woman. That's why, that's why he pauses here and inserts this because it comes right out of the creation of the woman that we have marriage. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave. Jesus did the exact same thing. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, when some of the Pharisees were trying to trap him, questioning him about divorce. Can you divorce a woman for any reason at all? And Jesus goes right back here. Have you not read? From the beginning, he made them male and female, chapter 1. And then he immediately says, and for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together. He moves right from the creation, male and female, to marriage. Because marriage is based on that complementary design. So, again, a little off subject, but so relevant for our culture today. That's why, again, I think think in the church we should believe that this marriage is a pre-government institution. Governments don't define marriage. God does. It's part of his moral law. And we believe 
So we trace it through scripture that this marriage, this one man and one woman is just essential for the flourishing of society. Therefore, we stand for that. And it is just, to me, kind of the height of hubris today for the first time in the history of mankind for our government to redefine the essence of marriage as just a union, just a civil union. No, so much deeper. It is one man, one woman in a one flesh relationship. That is the definition of marriage. And we think that's good for society. That's a different subject. It's related, but close that. Those are the eight clues, right? Those are eight clues. What do we do with those eight clues? These clues that point us to the complementary design and function of men and women. We have the sense when we read this chapter that they are pregnant with meaning. They're not arbitrary. They're not incidental. Why is the author slowing us down, giving us this account of the specific creation of men, the man and the woman, in this order and all that he says about it? There seems to be a deliberate pattern here that God wants us to learn. Now, I say that because I think we're on the right track there because that's how the authors of the New Testament are going to read this chapter. Not as arbitrary, but as meaningful. Here's an example. I'm not going to tell you the meaning of this text. I'm just going to give you an example. This is from Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll come to this text. We have to in our study. But he says, I I want you to understand that Christ is the head over every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. And he's going to say other things. But why would he say that? And and just listen to his reasoning. 4, verse 8. Man does not originate from the woman. But woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Verse 11. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. (laughs) So I... We'll get to that text and tell you anything about it means just that. See what Paul's doing. He's going back where Genesis chapter two. He's reading the order and the nature of creation and saying that means something that means something for the church. It means something for marriage. It's built into this chapter and this design. So there's meaning here. Meaning. What do we say? Well, there's a challenge in interpreting or applying, I should say, this chapter. It's a challenge, and we want to exercise caution because we understand that this is a descriptive account. It's not prescriptive. He's not saying all women are just like this. All men are just, all men should do this, and all women should do this. It's not quite right. It's a description. And it makes it challenging because we understand that Adam and Eve, in some way, they're representing all humanity, right? The first man, first woman. We knew that with Adam and his unique role to humanity. So they're representing all men and women in some way. And yet, we also understand that they are representing God's covenant people because they are in a covenant relationship with God. The fall has not happened yet. And we know that they are husband and wife. And it applies... There, just as Jesus applied it there. So that's why this chapter is, makes it more challenging to apply. And that's why we need the rest of Scripture to help us do that. And that's what we're going to see in this study. So that's, that's what we're going to try to flesh out. The foundation is here. How is it fleshed out in specifics in the rest of Scripture? We want the Bible to tell us. I don't want to just speculate on specifics. So I'm just going to close and offer you uh, these, these two general implications without details that we'll just have to, to explore. We learn from this chapter, I think the obvious thing, men and women are created different for 
different purposes, primary purposes. There, there are some primary purposes of men and women. And that in some way, these purposes correspond, there's a correspondence between their nature, that is their design, and their purpose. Right? I mean, the most obvious of that is just on the surface reading of the text is men, you know, it, it, here Adam, I should say, working, gardening, the man in his strength here, the woman, obviously, childbirth. I mean, those are pretty obvious design features that go to function. But what can we say generally? I'll just, I'm going to give you these two things. One, the benevolent headship of the man. The benevolent headship of the man. So I'm, I'm, I feel safe in using that language because that's the language Paul used. We just read it. First Corinthians 3, it's going to, or 11, he's going to use that another place. The headship of man. There's a, a headship that implies some authority and leadership. All through this account, the primary actor is Adam, the man, before the creation of a woman. Again, she's created in relation to the man, right? He's the one, work the garden, guard the garden, right? Keep these commands, name the animals. So I'm just going to, I'll say it like this. The man bears primary responsibility to lead in a God-glorifying direction. It's all safe. This headship involves some primary responsibility to lead in a God-glorifying direction. Now, in this text, we, we might be able to see this providing. He's working and protecting. He's guarding. At least here, we'd have to think about how those play out. He bears this primary responsibility. That's why he's created first. Again, we'll see this. In marriage, how it plays out in the church. But when we step outside marriage and church and start talking about society and broadly, it gets a lot harder to apply because cultures are very different. And so we'll talk about that. So that's all I'll say for the man and then for the woman. And I'll just make up a word the essential helpership of the woman, just to correspond with headship, helpership of the woman. I want to say this in a way, because that can sound immediately demeaning. And it is not meant to be at all. Again, we're, we're well out of time here. But back to verse 18. When he said, again, he's giving this purpose. It's not good. I will make this, this little phrase. I think it's just at the essence of this complimentary. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. That's the word he uses, helper, as part of the definition or purpose for his creation of the woman. Again, that to our ears, that can sound like inferior, uh, gopher, assistant, and not in the Bible. It helps to know that that word is mostly used of God. Of the 19 times that word, helpers use 16 times, it refers to God. God is our helper. God comes in this role to support and strengthen. So he's saying something very essential about the woman. Not personal inferiority at all. In fact, it implies that the other here, Adam, has a need he cannot meet by himself. He can't do it by himself. And he uses that phrase, the woman, I'll create a helper. And literally, it means the next phrase, like opposite me. Like opposite me. And that's where we get this idea of complementary. Correspond. Like me, but opposite me. In the sense that complements me. Completes in that way. A counterpart. That, that's right here at the essence of what we mean by a complementary design. They're equal, yet corresponding to each other. So the woman... I'll just say this, is uniquely created to assist and partner with the man in ruling over creation and all her uniquenesses, partnering, assisting with the man. Obviously, through procreation, be a big focus, part of multiplying and filling the earth. That is, the man cannot do this alone, neither can fulfill their vocation alone. So, that's all I'll say. We'll have to get the specifics. I think that's the pattern here 
in Genesis chapter 2. You can think on that. I just, I close with this. Well, again, we'll have to flesh this out. So this is probably raising lots of questions in your mind. What about this? You know, what, what about if you're not married? What about if you don't have kids? What about society? What about workplace? All, all those things. We, we'll go there. I just want to leave you with this quote. Because I, I think we should end celebrating. I just want us to celebrate God's beautiful, distinct, complementary design of men and women. Glory in it. Celebrate it. Let us not chafe under it, but love it. Here's a quote from one writer, pastor, I'll end with. Expressing sexual difference in a vast array of culturally conjugated ways, cultures differ in how they express it, can display the beauty of our particular differences. Our differences are more than merely random unstable assortments of contrast between two classes of person. Far from it. Our differences are musical and meaningful, inseparably intertwined. Recognizing this truth, most cultures celebrate sexual differences by developing gendered customs, forms, norms, traditions. Rather than treating gender, as our culture is often inclined to do, as restrictive, stifling, and a legalistic constraint, this approach welcomes sexual difference as an often liberating manifestation of meaning and beauty that resonates with the deep reality of creation. Genesis emphasizes not so much the difference between man and woman, but the depth and love of their one flesh union. Men and women are different, yet those differences aren't designed to polarize or pit us against each other. Rather, they are meant to be expressed in a unified yet differentiated activity within the world and in our closest bonds with each other. It is not a difference from each other, but a difference for each other. May we love that and celebrate that. There's a huge barrier to this complementary design of men and women. And it is sin. And that's next chapter. We'll get there next week. Let's pray. Uh, Father, help us to love what you have made. To believe it when we have so, so many voices contrary to what your word says. Oh, God, give us faith, trust that your word is good and your design of men and women is good and, and give us in all of our diversity and gifting, uh, just working this out to your glory, Lord. May we embrace it and love it and share it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.